everyone. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes. And we are going to be talking about the, the letter of 1 John today. And 1 John is one I could not believe we hadn't already done. Just uh, because it is it's such beloved. a beloved book. It's very, very prominent in, you know, in having verses that we all know. Um, but it is a really interesting book. It's a very unique book. And, and in some ways, it's really hard to get your hands around. I had a professor mm-hmm. at Southern, actually, that did his dissertation on the outline of First John. Because there, there are so many different outline uh-huh. proposals for First John. And I think, you know, if you read through First John, you realize John would have been great on Twitter. If they'd had Twitter in the first century, he would have been awesome because there's so many great one-liners. You know, Paul yeah. would have been publishing these big threads, you know, like 38-part threads on Twitter. But <laughs> John has these little one-liners that are so pithy and so great uh, to remember. And we'll, we'll cover a few of those, and we'll try to make sense of the book as a whole. And in order to do that, one of the things we, we always want to start with is a little bit of the background. And uh, sometimes the background matters, and sometimes it really doesn't matter as much. But th- this one, I think, is worth saying a few things about. There is some dispute as to who wrote First John. You might be saying, okay, it's called First John. You know, there's a gospel <laughs> called John. This should not be hard. Right. Well, John was a very common name in the ancient world, as it is a common name now. Mm-hmm. And there, there is some dispute uh, as to which John wrote the letters and which John wrote the gospel, and which John wrote Revelation. And so Mm -hmm. there are at least two Johns in the running. Now, I'll just say from the get-go, I think John the Apostle wrote all of these books, all five books. Yes, I agree. But there is, even among relatively conservative scholars, Mm -hmm. there is some debate as to who wrote portions of the Johannine, is what you call it, canon. Now, the gospel and Revelation are the two that people like to split And Mm -hmm. that's pretty obvious why you would do that. You've got this very interesting gospel uh, that's written about the life of Christ, that's very uh, philosophical and written in a certain style, Greek style. Mm -hmm. And then you have Revelation, which is unlike anything else in the New Testament. And uh, it is not written the same way, both in the content and in the grammar and everything else, which you can understand. If you had an experience like the book of Revelation, your grammar wouldn't be great either. Right. But uh, those are the two that people typically split, mm-hmm. and among the and among that that group, First John typically goes with the Gospel if it's just going to be that split. Because right. as you read through First John, it reads a lot like the Gospel Very of much. John. It, th- there's a lot of similar phrases, there's similar themes, things are stated the same way, the style is the same. There's another group of people though that think that there is John the Apostle. And John the Elder, John mm-hmm. the Elder, just being an itinerant pastor in the in the late first century, and that maybe he wrote Second and Third John, and or First John, and or Revelation. Right. I don't think many people uh, would put Revelation in that group, but there, there's some there's some disagreements on this. Um, and what what makes it more difficult is there are two tombs that have been found in Ephesus that both have the name John. And they're both from about the same time. Uh So people have thought, you know, evangelist, elder, apostle, Mm -hmm. apocalypse. We don't know. Right. I think there's several good reasons to think that John wrote all of these. One of them being early church tradition. Right. So you see allusions to 1 John found in Clement's letters, which are in the mid-90s. And so if we think this is written in maybe the early 90s, 
there's a, a, a lot of dispute too about do the letters come first? Do, does Revelation come first? Right. Depending on where you date Revelation, where should the gospel come? The gospel mm-hmm. has to come after the other gospels. You know, there's there's uh, some fancy footwork here, but in the 80s, maybe in the mm-hmm. early 90s, you already have these letters referenced mm-hmm. in other Christian literature within years after this happening. Right. Um, Eusebius cites another early church father named Papias, uh, who was speaking about John as one of the elders in Ephesus mm-hmm. uh, early on. This would have been in the in the sixties and seventies. Right. Citation yes. would have been would have been later, but uh, from the sixties and seventies. I think the most convincing argument is if you just read the gospel and you read First John. They sure seem like they were written by the same guy. That is exactly right. And that combined with the testimony of the church, Mm -hmm. thinking that all of these are written by John the Apostle, I think that's a pretty strong argument that they were all written by the same person. What do you think? Oh, I completely agree. And in general, I would just use this general rule in all of history, by the way, that it takes compelling evidence, and I mean compelling evidence, not just conjecture, to overturn the opinions of people who were much closer to the events. Mm -hmm. I feel that way about our founding fathers. I feel that way about anything in history. So I feel like if Clement, who's writing very early, thought that John wrote this, I'm not saying there's a 100% chance he's correct. I'm just saying 2,000 years later, it would take a lot of evidence for me to overturn somebody who was that close to it. Mm-hmm. That's just to me, it seems to me to be common sense. Yes. That one should require really good evidence, right. not just conjecture. I mean, that's a great rule of thumb, whether it's Pauline epistles that people think maybe somebody else wrote, whether it's right. uh, you know, first, second, and third John. Now, the one that I will tangle with is the early, early evidence that Paul wrote Hebrews. I think there is compelling evidence that he did not write Hebrews. And, and the early church was split. The early church was split. There were people in the early church that thought that Paul had written Hebrews, and I don't think he did. But we can take that up in another podcast. Right. But overall, I think that's a great principle. Um, And there's no compelling reason that we should think that 1 John is not written by John the Apostle. Right. So if you think that way, there's a really interesting arc of John's life. So Mm -hmm. you go from John being called an apostle with his brother James. They're known in the Gospels as the Sons of Thunder. So uh, Boanerges, they are uh, two two uh, brothers with temper problems, uh-huh. and they're the ones that try to call down fire on the city that rejects Jesus. I mean, they uh-huh. they were really a handful. And then all of a sudden, you have this apostle of love, not just the apostle that Jesus loved in the fourth gospel, but right. the apostle known as as someone who is loving. Uh, later on as a pastor. And I think some of that is the development of John's life. He lives longer than the other first-generation apostles. Right. And through most of the first generation of the church, he pastors in a town, at least for a while, Mm -hmm. in in Ephesus, that has one of the longest and richest histories of Christian community. I mean, if you think about this, no town, not even Jerusalem, has as rich a lineup of pastors and elders and teachers as Ephesus. So we know that the church is founded by Paul, and you can read about that in in Acts chapter 18 or 19, Mm -hmm. and then the the, uh, Ephesian elders in chapter 20. Right. So very early structure, very very early buy-in, strong congregation. He sends Timothy to Ephesus to be an elder there. We think probably First and Second Timothy are written to Ephesus when right. Timothy is working there as an elder. Shortly after that, 
You have John in Ephesus serving there. And after that, or at least later in his time there, you have the book of Revelation where Jesus writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. Right. So they, they have a, a gospel. They have a letter from Paul. They have one to three letters from John. We don't know where all these are addressed to, but one right. to three letters from John and a letter from Jesus and two letters to Timothy, their lead elder, right. all in one city in the first century. That's, yeah, that's I mean, a great point. That's a pretty good resume. For that city. That's exactly right. And as an anchor, and Ephesus was the foothold, if you will, into all of what we now call Turkey. And if you just look over the next 200 years, the bulk of the uh, persecution of Christians and the and just the stalwart faithful church through from you know 100 AD to 300 AD was in Turkey. Right. Yeah, this area is just... They were prepared to weather 200 years of persecution. Mm -hmm. All Christians were persecuted, but the Roman authorities and the people who lived in Turkey were fanatics about the emperor cult. And so these Christians were prepared, even though they didn't know it, because they were going to experience the worst persecution. Mm -hmm. And part of that preparation is what we see is, is probably the major theme in 1 John, which is holy living in light of false and divisive teaching. And this is where you have to do a little bit of um, detective work to figure out what's going on in Ephesus at the time. But it's clear from the letter that there are false teachers in Ephesus. Mm -hmm. And there's actually this false faction of teachers that John is describing in this letter that he is countering and reprimanding and encouraging the church against in the town of Ephesus. So there, there's four facts that emerge from the letter that give us a picture of what's happened in Ephesus. Um, first, they had people that had left the existing church. So mm -hmm. we, this isn't just like Galatians, for example, where there's intramural fighting going on right. in the church. These people have actually left the church. Two, they have differing views about Christ. This is in chapter 4, 1 through uh -huh. 3. They deny that Christ came in the flesh, for example. Right. Third, they disagree about keeping God's commandments. These people are teaching basically that you don't have to keep God's commandments. Mm -hmm. And then four, they have a continued and very strong influence on the existing church. So as a modern day example, this isn't just a fight within the church. This is the church split. A new church opens across the street and preaches sermons about how bad the old church is. Right. That's kind of the situation that's, that's going on great way in Ephesus that. when John is writing this letter. And these false teachers, uh, people have put together little constructions as to what these false teachers actually believed. Are they Gnostics? Are they proto-Gnostics? Right. Are they just apostate of some kind? And Colin Cruz has a great commentary on 1 John, among many. There's a lot of great commentaries on 1 John. But he, he says that basically the false teachers claimed to know God, but their actions didn't show it. Right. And that's really the heart of what John is addressing. That's why there's so much on how you live in 1 John, because the gospel bears specific fruit in your life. Right. We'll, we'll talk about that. They claim to be sinless. Yeah. Um, they deny that Jesus was the Christ. They deny that Jesus came by blood, you know, came in the flesh. And they lacked love for other believers. So what John is doing is he's pointing to the action of these false teachers and saying... We can tell by your behavior and by your beliefs that you are not of us. You started with us, you went out from us, but you're not of us. 
And this is really a hard thing to bring into the modern day because this sounds very divisive, right? If you, if right. you start saying this about other people, it, it sounds very divisive. But this is really what Paul's telling these people is, hey, look at their lives. Look right. at the things that they're doing. Look at the things that they're saying. Look at the things that they're teaching. This is not the gospel. Right. And it's great to see the, both Paul do it and hear John doing this and just calling out. Uh, think you say, well, we shouldn't criticize others. And his attitude here is we should love others, but we have to stand up for the truth. And I just want to show you, he did not want his children. This is an old John. He's going to talk to them as little children, dear mm-hmm. children. And he loves them. And just like a father or a mother with their children, you you aren't going to be so nice to the drug dealer that you're going to say, well, he's really a nice guy, but you really shouldn't use his drugs. No, you're, you're going to be righteously warning them that mm-hmm. this is evil. This, this behavior is not acceptable. You know, the early church tradition, now I'm into tradition, is that Corinthus, who was a Christian who began to teach is probably behind this kind of teaching. I don't know if that's true or not, but let me tell you what Corinthus taught, and you tell me if this wouldn't be appealing today. Mm-hmm. You know, God is spirit, and God is pure, and we also have a soul. We have a spirit that is pure. But you know what? All of us realize these bodies, they're corruptible. Our lusts and things like that are, are just, you know, people are just mean, and, and you know these bodies are not pure. And so how could possibly anybody think that a pure God could become such an impure thing? But there really is a Christ. There really is a Son of God who came spiritually, and they've purified my spirit and your spirit. Mm-hmm. These bodies, we're not going to have them all that long, and they're just hopelessly lost. What these bodies do doesn't really matter. Yeah. If you indulge your lust and your greed and so forth, yeah, that's what these bodies do. But your spirit has been saved by God. Right. Now, come to my church. Yeah, That's it'd very be a very, very compelling. And there are people preaching versions of this today, which yeah. is basically, hey, keep your soul good and healthy. You are a good person who does bad things. Right. And you have desires. Sometimes we give in to desires. This mm-hmm. is this is a, a mild form of dualism. Right. Between the spirit, which is good, and the body, which is bad. And as Christians, we actually affirm that our bodies are good. Our bodies are are have desires as do our souls uh and we need to be saved as a whole person but we also believe that we'll be resurrected with these bodies Mm -hmm. so there's a physical resurrection there's not a difference between uh or, or there's not a sharp distinction between the soul which will go to heaven and the body which will rot and return you know right to the earth so you know what there's a great story i i'm sure this is apocryphal um I don't know if it actually happened or not, but there's a great story about Carinthus where John is in this bathhouse in Ephesus and somebody mentions his name. That Carinthus is here. Yeah, and uh, John bolts out of the bathhouse. And somebody asked him, they said, why did you do that? And he said, I was afraid that God was going to bring the building down since Carinthus was in there. <laughs> I mean, that, that is how much he despised this false teaching. This teaching that was leading people astray. Yes. Yes. Um, so let's try to make sense of this letter as a whole. One of the problems with 1 John in terms of outlining is it doesn't have a major flow like Paul's letters do. It's right. much more like the book of Proverbs or like the book of James, where it has certain themes that it revisits over and it over circles again. circles back. 
to yes. the same theme two or three times. Yes, yeah. uh, but but outside of those themes, it's a little hard to organize. Yeah. Well, one way is looking at the very beginning. Remember we said that uh, it appears that these people that had left deny that Jesus came in the flesh. And you can see how they might deny and say, oh yeah, Jesus was a spirit from God, but couldn't have become a corrupt human being. Listen to verse uh, chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Now that sounds a lot like John, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon it, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest, in other words, it became physical, and I have seen it and testify and proclaim to you. He's rooting Jesus, the Christ. They called they believed in the Christ, they just didn't believe it was in a physical form. He said, mm-hmm. I touched him, I shook his hand. Yeah, I saw him. And he's basically refuting that by rooting it in eyewitness testimony. Yeah, I think that's a really strong beginning to this book because it stresses the reality that Christ came. He really did die. He really did rise from the dead. And you really are called to live a righteous life right. because of it. You know, there's a lot of really famous passages. I think one of them is in uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Again, this is used sometimes, mm-hmm. maybe not consciously, but this is used sometimes to promote a kind of Carinthus type. Right. If you say you, you haven't sinned, sin. you're lying. So because how could you confront someone else's sin? Everybody sins. But notice how John deals with this. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all righteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, there's a great point in there about confession, cleansing, but this is where the chapters do not do us any favors because mm-hmm. people usually stop at that point. But yes. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. Yeah. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? Yeah. So this is not a get out of jail free card to say, hey, everybody does it. If you do it, just pray, God will forgive you, no big deal. No, that is true. You will be forgiven. You should confess. God will will cleanse you from your sins. But I've written this so you wouldn't sin. He's echoing Paul in Romans uh, chapter 6 when he says, well, should we continue in sin because we have this forgiveness? He said, God forbid. Mm-hmm. Don't you know that you're called to a life like Christ? Yeah. They completely agree on this. Yeah. John does not recognize the dichotomy between what we consider a lot of times as love and truth. Yes. Okay, so he says later in this chapter, if anyone says uh, that he loves God, but he does not keep his commandments, then he is not of God. That's a recurring theme that runs through this. It is impossible to say that you love God and not keep his commandments. It's impossible to uh, go through keeping the commandments and not love God, right? These things are linked together. It is loving God that will manifest in you doing the things that God has commanded you to do. And there's nothing, like Paul says, there is nothing about just obeying a set of rules that makes you right before God. Right. These things are linked. Loving God and doing what he commands prove each other. And we could insert faith in there as well uh, for some of these terms. That's the way that that Paul typically talks about it. But for Uh John, putting your trust in Christ or having your faith in Christ 
is typically expressed by saying loving God, right? This is the kind of all-encompassing loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it's not the subjective love that we typically talk about, which is feeling kindly disposed towards God. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 is exactly what you're saying. But whoever keeps his word, I mean, whoever obeys what Jesus told us, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Mm -hmm. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Now that's interesting. But this is how we know that we are part of Christ. Whoever says that he is part of Christ ought to live in the same way that Christ lived. Mm -hmm. And that is very bold. And I do think today... Uh, in particularly in churches that came out of a Wesleyan Arminian tradition, I think, and I speak about this for myself because I have very uh, Arminian kinds of ideas on some things. I do think if you aren't careful, you can emphasize love and separate it from obedience. Mm-hmm. And I think this is important because John Wesley taught holy love. Mm-hmm. He taught he taught the same love. I mean, he got he learned from John, and that is that love and obedience go together. Yes. And, you know, there's a series of tests in 1 John, and I've actually taught 1 John this way before. If you don't want to teach the whole book, uh, you can teach just these little tests. So John, I think he provides four of them. I didn't look this up before we Mm -hmm. talked about this, but I think he provides four tests through the book. And this is the first one, which is, this is how we know that we are in him. This is how you test your faith to know that it is genuine. Mm-hmm. Are you abiding in him, walking in the same way that he walked? Right. This is one of the charges against the false teachers is they say they know Christ, but they don't look anything like him. That's a great test of your faith. If you say you love God, are you doing the things that Jesus did? You know, or, or, or later we see one in, later in chapter 2 uh, about loving the world. Right. right. Don't love the world. That doesn't mean don't love people in the world. Don't love the ways of the world. Because right. the ways of the world are opposed to the ways of God. So a good test is, given the choice, which one are you choosing? You know, which way are you leaning? Which way are you drawn to? So he's going through all these things to say, hey, the fruit of your life, the commandments that you follow, the things that you desire, the people you want to be like, all reveal things about the condition of your heart. That is a great point. I mean, if you think about John as the, as the apostle of love... But listen to this in three, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. This is brutal. And to understand it, you have to understand that he doesn't separate obedience and love. We do. He doesn't. Listen to this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. Mm-hmm. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That is chilling. But he's not saying that like, okay, so you better get your act together and behave well. He sees this much more holistically. He said, don't kid yourself saying you love Jesus if you're not following him and living the way he lived. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, that's actually what love is mm-hmm. in the Bible. And yeah. Which is interesting because that's where he goes after this. And, right. and we quote these passages a lot. But the later part of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 are concerned with defining love. Biblical love. What is love? And he says in chapter 3 verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. 
and whatever we ask, uh, whatever we ask, we receive in Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So this is the this is the issue of conscience, mm-hmm. right? Which is very important to the way that we define love. So we we talk about love basically as an impulse, mm-hmm. and what He's doing here is He's just laying down a, a rule that says, "Look, your heart with quotes around it is fickle." Yes. But what God has commanded is not fickle. Okay, so you you know that you're in the truth, not just because you feel that you are, right. but because you're actually obeying what God has said. Because you've brought your heart before him, it says in verse 19. Uh, we reassure our hearts before him. That's be prayer, confession, all of these things. Because we're actually abiding by the things that he's commanded us to do. So when you try to start to fuse that with a definition of love, you start to realize... Like you said, for John, loving God is obeying God in an objective standard, right? Because obedience, we think, is totally objective. Love, we typically define as totally subjective. And in this fusion of these two together, love and obedience together, we see there is an objective standard that, it, that every person can take part in. Right. That's, that's what it means. And so then in chapter 4, you go on and you get a formal definition of what love is. Look at 4 verse 7 to 11. Let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Mm-hmm. So this is a biblical definition of love. Right. The sacrifice of God on behalf of sinful human beings as a propitiation for their sins. That's the definition of love. Yeah. I think that's powerful. I, I would argue here maybe use this phrase. John sees love as commitment. And that transcends feeling. It includes feeling, but it transcends feeling. Mm-hmm. Let me give an example. So you're a young uh, woman and you have two suitors. You have two young men that both want to marry you. And the first one says... You're my all. You're my everything. I can't think of anything but you. You warm my heart. You make me happy. And I, I just can't get you out of my head. I'm madly in love with you. Would you marry me? And the second young man says to you, I love you and I will be with you forever. I will be faithful. I'll be true. I will always be on your side. Now, I'm, this is a little bit artificial. You'd like to have both. But if I were choosing, I'd want the one who made the lifelong commitment mm-hmm. more than the one who could eloquently express the height of feeling. Mm-hmm. Because you and I both know that feelings are fickle. Commitment lasts. Mm-hmm. Now, again, we're called, uh, that's an artificial example, we're called to have feelings, but when we don't, there's always that bedrock of commitment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how John sees love. Yeah, and our commitment is defined by what God has already done. Yes. You know, so our love is defined by the fact that we have been loved, not that we muster up our own love for God. But this is, he says, this is love, not that we love God. Okay, the starting point for love is not us loving God. The starting right. point for love is being loved by God. And so the commitment draws from a commitment that's already been made to you from God. So there's an origin of our love and of our obedience that's outside of ourselves. And the Spirit brings that about in us. The Spirit is really, we don't have time to get to it, but the Spirit plays a really interesting role in John, Mm -hmm. both in John the Gospel, 1 John, also in Revelation, the Spirit plays a very interesting role. But the Spirit is something that kindles that love that we've received and then helps it to pour out of our life into other people 
and into other things. One of my favorite verses, and if you want to memorize one that should just encourage you, goes along with what you said. We love because he loved us first. John 3.1. Do you see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God? And so we are. Mm -hmm. That is what you said. We respond to God's love. Mm -hmm. We don't have to muster it up on our own. You know, chapter 5... Uh, hits several of these themes again. So we see if you if you say you love God but you don't love your neighbor, you don't really love God. We, mm-hmm. we saw that we saw that earlier in the letter as well. But then we get to this interesting part in verse six. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is one who testifies because the Spirit is true. For there are three that testify: the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. What's going on here? Yeah, this is interesting. I'll see what you think. But uh, my view in this is this is a little bit more of a Jewish way of thinking about this. Is Remember when Jesus said, if I were a man and given you my own testimony, you would doubt that testimony. But the Father yeah. testifies for me. I think that's what you get. The Spirit testifies. And if you place your trust in Christ, you should have that reaffirmation. The idea of coming by the water, to me, goes back to the whole idea. Oh, this is too big to talk about. But the Israelites going through the Red Sea mm-hmm. and God delivering them through the water. And baptism, Jesus going into the Jordan and being baptized. And he came as a purification through this water that's so known. But then he did something that's never been done. He shed his blood for us. Mm-hmm. You know, through, and this has always been a weird thing to me, but... Uh, Though our sins be as scarlet, will be washed white as snow. We're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Mm-hmm. And you think that's a more powerful cleansing than a water. Mm-hmm. So I put those three together, and I think I, under, I think I understand what he says. He says, these three testify right. to him. But I don't know if that's very clear, but it no, resonates I think that's, with me. I think that's exactly what he means, and I think that's the point uh, in terms of what Christ did. This is one of the passages that makes me 100% convinced this was written by the same John that wrote the gospel. Right, right. Because, you know, the gospel of John, which I don't think we've done this on the podcast yet, but the gospel of John is arranged, some people think, and I, I think this is compelling, I don't think mm-hmm. it's the only thing, but like a trial. Yeah. Uh, and so you have Jesus on trial, but actually in the gospel, you have everyone else on trial. So it's this little play that John is doing. And you get to the scene with Pilate, for example, where Pilate thinks the that... pinnacle of the gospel to me. Yeah. The gospel of John. That Jesus is on trial, and then Jesus turns the tables and <laughs> is, is like, yeah, actually, you're the one on trial, and I'm the judge. You know, <laughs> you get that theme, and there's all these proofs in John mm-hmm. of who Jesus is. And he says, this has been written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. You see that in John 20. You see that in John 21. You're also going to see that in the second part of chapter 5 right. of this letter. Well, <clears throat> one of the things for Jews in a trial is you can't accept the testimony of someone unless you have two or three witnesses. So, like you said, this is a very Jewish way of thinking. We don't think about this the same way. But what he's saying is refuting these false teachers. Jesus, the man Jesus, is the Christ. And I will give you three witnesses. The Spirit, who... You know, at Jesus' baptism, transfiguration, testifies. He testifies in our hearts. That passage I read a few minutes Mm -hmm. ago says that. 
the water and the blood. The blood that he shed, Passover theme, the water, um, mm-hmm. Exodus motif. Right. But I also think the water and the blood uh, go back to when Jesus' side is pierced. Yes. And the water and the blood come out. Those Clear were connection. proofs right. of his death. Mm-hmm. These are proofs of his uh, divinity. His claim. Yes. So I, this is a real interesting little intertextual passage mm-hmm. with the Gospel of John, other things we know about Jesus' life, that these three agree and these three testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And there's a lot of ways we can extrapolate that, but I think that it reaches back to the story of Jesus and his death on the cross, as well as talking about how it's applied to us, like you were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. You know, the... Uh... Again, uh, I'm maybe skipping ahead of where you want to go, but the last verse, this letter ends in a little bit of an unusual way for a first century letter. Mm-hmm. You read the letters of Paul, they're going to end with, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. You know, something like that. But this one ends really differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't end like a letter. And and some people wonder if it is really a letter. Uh-huh. Maybe it's a sermon or something instead. Or maybe the, the letter has had the beginning and the end chopped off. Because uh, Paul's letters read like Greek letters. They have the standard greeting, the mm-hmm. person who's writing, the addressees, all of that. They have a formal ending. This one doesn't. But it does end with a very interesting line. It says, My little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the parting word. Why do you think he ended that way? Well, I have two thoughts. One personal, one in terms of this. I just purely conjecture as to why he, he wrote that way. Is the idea that there are a lot of idols in the world. And anything that, uh, that you love becomes an idol. Mm-hmm. Only one thing is worthy of your Love, And I'm talking about love like we've just been talking about. Your commitment, your obedience, your uh, following the example, and that's God. Anything else you love. Do not love the world, either the things of the world, because mm-hmm. that's an idol. So I think he just is summarizing, perhaps, this is a conjecture, he's summarizing the whole thing as, don't forget, only one thing is worthy of your love. Mm-hmm. Everything else is an idol. Yeah, what do you I, think? I agree is that, that possible? I tend to read a little bit into the text here and think, you know, John is probably in his 80s yeah. at this point. I mean, I think that's about as young as he can be if this mm-hmm. is really written in the late 80s, early 90s. He's pretty young when he's called. Maybe he's born in the teens, right. you know. Uh, and so he's pretty old at this point, at this especially at this time. Yeah. That That's, you know, uh, translated... Uh, with with inflation and everything, that's like 120 years old. <laughs> so he is very old, and I will say, sometimes when you talk to really old people, they have a way of capturing wisdom in little quotes that don't necessarily sound all that wise, and then you start to think about it and you realize, oh, there's a lot of wisdom in this. I kind of read it that way. It's one of those, hey, if I had to leave you the parting word, keep yourselves from idols. Yeah. And kind of like, what? And then you start to think about it. And like you said, this really underscores everything that's in this letter. If you will just focus on keeping yourself from loving the things that you should not love, giving yourself to the things that you should not give yourself to, trusting in the things that you should not trust yourself to, that's pretty much the bottom line. Keep yourself from idols. You know, I would, uh, I would end with this saying, I'm not suggesting you need to do this, but to underscore your point of how wise this is, you could do worse 
than spending an entire year of your life trying to live out that little phrase. Mm-hmm. You know how I make a New Year's resolution or I'll right. make a spiritual goal or I'll read through the Bible. You know, you could do worse than to say, you know, I'm going to take the next year and I'm going to try to live out, keep myself from idols. You could spend a year doing that mm-hmm. and grow in your faith. That's how profound that is. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting ending to the letter, but I think it summarizes almost everything that's in this letter. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.